Welcome to Driving Forces, our weekly show that dives right into the big issues in city, state, and national politics and policies. We've got a great show for you lined up today. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined, as always, by my radio compatriot, Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jeff. Glad to be here with you, as always. So I've been uh, trying, amid work all day, trying to follow the latest developments in Washington. So much has been going on. But first, what's been on your mind, Celeste? What would you like to talk about today? Yeah, I mean, there's really a ton of stuff going on going on in, in Washington as a big part. Just heard a little bit on the uh, on the news break about what's going on with that abortion decision uh, in Texas. Very big deal there. Uh, you know, obviously putting that on hold, uh, putting enforcement of that on hold, it doesn't end the problem, doesn't solve the problem. Uh, it doesn't make the issue go away. But, you know, taking a bit more time to consider this, you know, really what could be a really monumental uh, decision on the state level. Uh, it seems like uh, that's that's something that's going to be going on for quite a while. And I think a lot of people uh, besides you and I have been paying good attention to that. Yeah. And the, and the judge's decision in that there was a line that just really stuck out to me where the judge had written that the court won't sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. That was such a signature line, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that certainly this is this is going to have uh, a big impact on people in the state. But of course, what we always look for in Supreme Court cases is whether it sets any sort of precedent to either establish a new restriction or to roll back existing protections. So I think that's why this has gained sort of, you know, really such universal interest uh, throughout the community. And, and that, by the way, folks who are tuning in, that's going to be one of the topics we will ask our second guest uh, coming up in about 20 minutes about. That's Congressman uh, Mondaire Jones, who's joining us for the first time here on Driving Forces on WBAI. But there's so much that we could talk about today. I mean, all the developments coming out of, of Washington, D.C. regarding the national debt crisis, the other measures that are under consideration, we will be asking him about them, too, in the latest developments, because it seems like there may be an agreement on even a short-term debt ceiling increase, but we'll have to see about that. But our first guest, we're going to get to him right away, first time on this show, is Jano Lieber. He's the new guy who was just appointed recently by our now former governor, Andrew Cuomo, to serve as acting chair and CEO of the MTA. Now, just a little about Jano. He had been serving as president of MTA Construction and Development, the organization that is responsible for capital planning and development and delivery of capital projects for the organization. Previously, for 14 years up until 2017, he served as president of the World Trade Center Properties LLC, where he was responsible for managing all aspects of Silver, the Silverstein organization's efforts to rebuild the World Trade Center site. That's actually where I had crossed paths with him in one of my earlier jobs with the Downtown Alliance. And earlier in his career, he held positions in the administration of President Bill Clinton and former Mayor Ed Koch and worked as an attorney in private practice. But we wanted to bring him on today because as many of us return to work, as things hopefully are getting back to normal, we're riding the subways again. We're taking public transit again. There's a lot of issues the MTA has had to deal with and will be dealing with. So we thought we'd get the latest developments from him. General Lieber, welcome to Driving Forces. Great to be with you again, Jeff. 
So you recently stepped into this role amid a pandemic and at a time when, as I noted, people are returning to work. We want to get to the state of our transportation system. But first, since this is your first time on the show, we'd love our WBAI listeners to know a little more about you and why you wanted to lead the MTA. Well, I, I don't know if I, if, I, if I wanted to lead the MTA, but I've been passionate about public transit since I grew up in the city and started riding the bus to school with my brother when we were, I think, seven and six. And when I got into, uh, when I came out of college, I worked for a time in the, in, in, in the city hall on MTA issues. And that was exciting time when we were starting to rebuild the MTA system from the bad years of the, of the seventies and, and, and so on. So, as you know, I'm a Brooklynite. I'm a passionate New Yorker. I love great challenges. You and I talked about our work on the World Trade Center, where I spent 14 years. This is a challenge, and it's really the linchpin of New York, Jeff. You know that New York is impossible without public transit, and we're and we're in that moment where we have to put the city back together again. And transit is just the heartbeat of that process. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Really do appreciate you taking the time to be here with us on the program. Uh, we are going to get back to uh, the subway system because that certainly is a, a huge part of of what is uh, vital to our listenership and uh, the people out there. But just want to jump over for one minute to something that uh, we've been talking about for a very long time in New York, congestion pricing. You know, mm-hmm. wondering what you are hearing. There have been online hearings, uh, you know, in the areas that are really affected, um, you know, Generally, people who favor it outnumber people who don't. But, you know, curious to uh, to know what have you been hearing and what do you think of what you've been hearing about people's feelings about congestion pricing? Well, well first of all, just to be clear, the legislature has enacted uh, congestion pricing. We're in the process of making sure it complies with the federal environmental rules, you know, going through this uh, environmental review process with all the hearings and the analysis, which will end with a a federal environmental decision. But we're moving forward on this, and we're doing it for a couple of reasons. One is climate change. we got it. You know, New York is already, in many ways, the model of the anti-climate change uh, uh, approach because we are a mass transit community instead of being cars. So we we, we have to deal with climate change. We need to deal with, you know, pollution as part of our world. but we, we, we really also need congestion pricing to, uh, you know, in effect, to, to support the mass transit system. The legislature dictated that it be that we do congestion pricing partly to raise money so the MTA can rebuild the subways, have zero emissions buses, have more ADA accessible stations and do all that stuff we know needs investment. Um, so we really are going forward with congestion pricing for all of those reasons um, together. And what do you say, uh, you know, one of the objections that we've been hearing, again, for quite a long time, maybe for as long as we've been talking about uh, congestion pricing, is that would it, it would have a disproportionate impact on people who live outside of Manhattan. You know, I, I understand that this is in uh, in progress, but what do you say to people who are concerned about this having an outsized effect uh, on people who live in the outer boroughs? Look, I mean, the, the the key fact is that people are not, you know, there, there's some misapprehension. Commuting to the to the city, 
to, to Manhattan um, by automobile is not something that's widely done. Downtown, Jeff and I worked on, on the rebuilding of Lower Manhattan. Lower Manhattan is a 95% mass transit commuter uh, business district. In the Midtown, uh, a few more drivers. So really, it's really a very small slice of the population that is electing to drive, and they're already paying a ton for parking. I mean, this is in, in large part a rich man's game, driving to, um, into the city for work. And, you know, as for people who come on the weekends, and we, we're thrilled to, you know, that Broadway is back in action, the easiest way to get to Times Square and to Broadway is to take mass transit. There's no question. But if people elect to come in and spend $50, $60 for parking on top of, you know, several hundred dollars for, for, for tickets, I don't think that, you know, somewhere between 9 and $20 for congestion pricing is going to change their decision. So we think this is even-handed mostly because it really is designed to benefit mass transit users, which is the vast majority of New Yorkers, whether they live in the outer boroughs or they live in Manhattan. And you just mentioned the potential range of fees. I'm curious what most people might expect to pay if they're traveling into Manhattan during peak or off-peak hours. Yeah, well, the again, the, ultimately the decisions about what is the toll and what are the exemptions and discounts have to be made by this new board that the legislature dictated called the TMRB, the Traffic Mobility Review Board. And that hasn't been fully created yet. Um, it'll be done, you know, sometime during or after the, the hearings are concluded when we have all that that data. But initially, the, the projection is that the, the range could be from $9 up to $23. Um, and that would hinge on, and where it fell in that range would hinge on how many exemptions or discounts are given out uh, to different groups based on, uh, are you know the the, the the sense of equity or other issues that are considered by this traffic mobility review board. So the more discounts and exemptions are given out, the higher the base toll would have to be. And likewise, if there are fewer, then the low, the fee would be the, the base fee uh, would be lower. And we should note that there will be some exemptions. Do you expect that, you know, I guess what might some of them be? And might this change based on the feedback that you're hearing at some of these hearings? It might, it, Jeff, it might indeed change, but the, the basic ones that were outlined in the initial legislation were um, for people with disabilities, um, discounts for people of low income. Um, you know, there wasn't much more detail, but let me just be clear. If somebody wants to come, has to go through Manhattan to get to another part of the world or get to one of the other boroughs, they can go on, as long as they stay on the West Side Highway or West Street, as it's called, or on the FDR Drive, and they, as long as they don't enter the Central Business District south of 60th Street, that there's no toll for just passing through in that way. It's only when you cross over to being in the Central Business District that you would be told. There are all kinds of people arguing for exemptions, and obviously some of them are legitimate, you know, some people have said, well, cops should be able to drive in for free. Other people say, why should cops be exempted from this so they get to drive? It go, you know, uh, a million different things. People who are coming for medical appointments. Arguments are, have been made and are going to be made. In the end, that's going to be that traffic mobility review board decision uh, about what discounts and exemptions to give out. 
We're talking, if you're just joining us, to uh, Jano Lieber. He's the head of the uh, MTA, and we're talking about congestion price and going to switch over shortly to uh, talking about the state of our subways. But, uh, Chairman, just want to ask you, you know, a lot of people are looking at this and saying, you know, the whole idea here is to make uh, Midtown, essentially, to make Manhattan less of a mess when it comes to traffic. Wondering uh, what's going on with figuring in the effect of Uber and Lyft drivers, uh, you know, if there if there's going to be uh, – uh, uh, you know, something done there in terms of taxing them or, you know, uh, addressing the impact of uh, people driving around sort of outside the uh, the yellow cab and, and black car system? You know, it's a, it's a good question, Celeste. Uh, we're, I, I think that that may indeed be how do you uh, include uh, four hire vehicles like Uber and Lyft in this whole system is one of the questions that is going to be addressed. But you know, to the bigger question, we need to get deal with the issue of congestion. It's not just an air quality issue and, it, and climate change issue, but congestion is keeping people from being able to move around on buses. It's keeping paratransit vehicles, which are carrying disabled people, from being able to get from A to B in a reasonable time. It impedes, you know, there are, there are you know, goods and materials that have to get around for our economy to function. So we need to reduce congestion and this uh, congestion pricing system, central business district tolling, as it's called, um, is going to is intended to do just that. And uh, we wanted to switch over, as I said, to talking about uh, the subways. I just want to talk about one other thing before we get there, though. I'm making, I'm making a lot of stops on this trip, as you can tell. Um, yes. But uh, another thing that we've talked about a lot here on our program, uh, of course, is the uh, effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have talked about just recently as well, the effect of mandatory vaccinations among staff, uh, people who work in the in the public sphere, like schools, healthcare. Uh, a lot of people talking about that. Uh, from what we understand, the MTA workforce has had a relatively lower vaccination rate um, in terms of public employees than maybe in other sectors. Uh, you guys have a new policy now that uh, uh, workers have to be fully vaccinated as of November 14th, and you also have a testing regimen in place. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of vaccination rates and compliance? Uh, are you going to go to full mandatory and uh, remove the testing option? What's going on there? Yeah, well, the first thing I should emphasize is that since I got this new position in uh, the beginning of, uh, of uh, August, we've driven up the vaccination rates from 48% to uh, mid to high 60s. And, and we actually think that because of our biggest problem is when people are vaccinated and they don't let us know, they're not all, not all of our workers are using the uh, website to let us know. So we've got our, we are confident our numbers are well above 70%. That's starting to be pretty good. Um, it's not uh, hitting it out of the park. But I've been passionate about vaccination for some time. You know, we let the MTA workers get their vaccines early um, because they were essential workers and they stayed, as everybody knows, in the field, including our construction workers. And in my group, the, before I, I, I took on the chairman job at construction and development, we actually have the numbers over 90 percent. And we did that mostly by reaching out to people and finding out about people who had vaccinated, who'd been inoculated, but had not uploaded their cards. So 
We think our numbers are getting pretty good. We're pretty passionate about it. And we're making sure that everybody who's not on the system as having gotten a vaccine is actually getting regular testing. It's safe for them. It's safer for their families. And obviously, we don't want them coming to work and actually putting other people at risk. So we think this is heading in a good direction. And, Jen, I know we only have about two or so minutes left. One thing I've noticed as I've taken the subway recently is I'm seeing more ridership. I'm seeing more people. And I'm going not just at, you know, peak, I'll say drive time, not during the normal hours I'd be commuting. You know, what are the numbers? Are we seeing, are you seeing a much larger increase right now in people using our transit system, particularly the subways? Yeah, Jeff, you know, the numbers really have started to move since Labor Day. It's not been as much of a spike as we hoped. Obviously, the Delta variant and the concern about that has, you know, somewhat suppressed the trajectory. But we're, you know, consistently above 3 million on the subways. The, the commuter railroads have all of a sudden shot up. They're, they're over 50 percent of their pre-COVID levels. And the important thing, Jeff, the indication that we're seeing, oh, by the way, the buses are at roughly 60 percent, and they've been very strong right through COVID. Um, but the important thing that I think is, a, is an in indicator of where we're headed is that on the weekends where travel is discretionary, the numbers are 75 percent of pre-COVID. That indicates that people are feeling comfortable. They're ready to come back and use the subway where it's a matter of choice. We're just waiting for the employers call people into the offices. And I think once that starts to happen, um, we're really going to see the numbers move even faster. And I know we've got to wrap up in about a minute, but I, you know, I just wanted to ask you this because of the, I mean, I have not seen you in years. Uh, and, you know, and I mentioned that about working uh, with you on, you know, bringing people back to lower Manhattan, going back to the 10th anniversary when I work with the Downtown Alliance. We just marked the 20th anniversary since the World Trade Center attacks. And I'm curious what that moment was like for you. Thanks for asking, Jeff. I mean, I, I in my new job, I was invited to the ceremony to, to stand with the three presidents and the governors and the mayor and, and others. And it was incredibly moving because the World Trade Center, I mean, you, you were part of this. We all envisioned a lower Manhattan that was a better version of lower Manhattan that existed before 9-11, and it arrived. It is a true live, work, play community. And even with, you know, some of the um, impacts of COVID, it's incredibly dynamic, an incredibly dynamic part of the city. Um, and you felt that on 9-11, the memorial that we were standing in for the ceremony is, you know, the trees are all in bloom and, you know, the buildings are back and the Performing Arts Center is almost done. One of the last features of the of the rebuilding and the area around the Trade Center has just blossomed. So, you know, I think you and I um, probably share that feeling of a tremendous sense of accomplishment that we, we, we accomplished the mission, which is to create a better lower Manhattan. And it's really it's for keeps. General Libra, I'd really like to thank you and your team also for assisting and having you on our radio show today. Thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz-Marston and myself on Driving Forces today. You bet. Thanks for having me. So, Celeste, you know, I have to say, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to ask about that is, I mean, the 20th anniversary, I still cannot believe it's been two decades. 
No, I, I totally can't. And sort of the more I think about it, the stranger it seems just, you know, looking back at pictures or looking back at the reporting that you and I did that day, thinking about how different our lives were and, and how much that's changed the way we live and the way we do basic things like travel or walk into a building or pack a suitcase or, any, you know, anything like that. Uh, you know, the steps that we take just to live our daily lives, really, really kind of amazing, uh, no matter how much you think about it. And so as we noted at the top of the show, there's a lot going on in Washington. We're going to shift gears right now. Um, yep. So much has been going on in Washington, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a new Quinnipiac poll that's come out, and there's always, these are always packed with a lot of uh, data points that I find really interesting. But, you know, they talked about uh, how much the federal government should be helping people. You know, uh, a lot of most people saying in that poll that the government should be doing more to help Americans, but shouldn't spend too much, uh, expressing some feelings about how much they like or don't like uh, members of both political parties or the parties themselves. Who would they rather uh, see in power? Talked about climate change, talking about a lot of different things. So yeah, definitely a lot going on on the national scene. And joining us right now to make sense of all this and uh, making his debut right here on Driving Forces on WBAI is one of the newest members of our congressional delegation from New York. That's Congressman Mondaire Jones, serving his first term in Congress, representing New York's 17th district. That includes all of Rockland County and parts of Central and Northern Westchester County. Uh, he's a product of East Ramapo Schools, a graduate of Stanford University, a veteran of working for the Department of Justice Office of Legal Policy, where he vetted candidates for federal judgeships, also a graduate from uh, Harvard Law School. Before running for Congress, he was a litigator in private practice, uh, where he received an award from the Legal Aid of Society for his pro bono service investigating claims of employment discrimination and helping families defrauded during the Great Recession. So Ed, uh, with no further ado, uh, Congressmember Jones, a pleasure to welcome you to Driving Forces here today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's great to be with you as well. So we just ran through some of the latest developments in Washington, obviously much, much more than that going on. But since this is your first time here with us on the program, you know, just like to give you a second to talk to listeners about what are you working on? What has been a real priority for you here in your first term? Uh, well, I so appreciate the opportunity. Uh, there's obviously so much going on in Washington. We are deep in negotiations over uh, what kind of society we want to be with respect to uh, enabling uh, everyone in this country to live in dignity. And now I'm talking about that large reconciliation bill known as the Build Back Better Act, uh, this president's broadly popular transformative economic agenda that includes Medicare expansion to include dental, vision, and hearing, high-quality, affordable child care, uh, like the program that I helped pass out of the House Education and Labor Committee uh, a few weeks ago, climate action. I think we're all paying even closer attention to that after Hurricane Ida uh, and really what is a series of worsening uh, climate catastrophes, especially in the Northeast region. Um, but I think most people probably know me for my work as a leader in the area of voting rights. I authored a provision of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which passed in the House uh, of Representatives in August of this year. And I'm really pleased to have also authored a key provision of a bill known as the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, which is a set of democracy reforms similar to those that are contained in the bill called the For the People Act that even Joe Manchin has gotten on as an original co-sponsor. So now we got to get an exception to the filibuster to save our democracy, which is in crisis, and I'm fighting tooth and nail to make sure that happens. 
And thanks for mentioning those uh, those measures because you know voting rights that is an incredibly important issue. I know there had been a small protest outside the White House earlier this week regarding voting rights. Now to urge passage, uh, what's the pathway to success of voting reforms across this country? How will that? How will they take place? What you know? What's that pathway? The, the pathway runs through filibuster reform. I mean, there's simply no way around it. Uh, today's Republican Party, the party of Donald Trump, is not interested uh, and indeed cannot compete on the merits of its deeply unpopular policy ideas. And so pivots to disenfranchising large segments of the American electorate, uh, particularly people of color uh, and lower income people. And that's why you're not going to see 10 Republican senators get onto either of those two bills I just mentioned, uh, which is what would be required to overcome the filibuster. And that is why we need Mansion and Cinema uh, to join everyone of good conscience uh, in making an exception to or getting rid of altogether this relic, really, of the Jim Crow era. We've seen the filibuster used historically to block civil rights legislation during the civil rights movement. Well, now it's being done for the same purpose and so many other purposes. Uh, and so we've got to get the president to say, look, I agree with you. We got we to gotta do something about the filibuster. I was the first person in Congress to call on the president to take a public position and make an exception to or abolish outright the filibuster because we are running out of time and we cannot afford for the party of insurrection to regain control of government through disenfranchising people, no less. And if you're just joining us, we are speaking to Congressmember Mondaire Jones here on WBAI. And Congressmember, I think that provides a really nice and really important segue to something else that we wanted to ask you about, which is speaking of the word insurrection, you had barely just started your tenure in Congress uh, when there was this uh, riot, this attempted takeover of the United States Capitol. You know, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what was your experience there and how has that influenced uh, you know, your thinking and your work since, uh, particularly, I'd like to hear, pertaining to, to voting rights, because some of these people were certainly under the impression that uh, the election was fixed and Joe Biden was not a legitimate president. It is an extraordinary moment in history that, in some ways, we are still living through, not just because of the trauma that people like myself and my colleagues experienced uh, as you know, in my case, I was on the House floor not thinking that we would make it out of the chamber that day uh, because we were so uh, under-resourced when it came to security and had to lock down the chamber. Uh, and it wasn't clear whether there would be a way to escape. And thankfully, we were able to eventually after folks had barricaded what's called the Speaker's Hallway and we snuck out through the tunnels. But, you know, that was the first time in my life, I think, uh, that, that I can remember at least my life flashing before me and thinking that I wouldn't uh, make it out alive someplace. Uh, and, of course, just hours later, the American people know that two-thirds of my House Republican colleagues nevertheless voted to overturn that free and fair presidential election that took place last year, even after nearly dying alongside me over the big lie that the election was somehow stolen uh, from Donald Trump. Uh, and, and that... That made it even clearer to me. I mean, I, I, look, I ran for Congress on the theory that Democrats have got to be fighting harder for the things that we say we believe in on behalf of the American people. But uh, if there was ever any question that our democracy was in crisis, I think that was clear evidence of the fact. 
obviously the voter suppression that we've seen enacted in Georgia and Florida and Arizona and more recently in Texas is additional evidence. The fact that we couldn't even get a, you know, 10 Republicans in the Senate to sign on to bipartisan legislation to create a commission that would simply investigate what happened on January 6th uh, is also evidence that our democracy is in crisis. Uh, and I believe that we are in the fight of our lives and that uh, our democracy is dying right now and that we have a rare opportunity to save it through protecting the fundamental right to vote. And it's really scary, but I'm also optimistic as I've seen people mobilize, people with good conscience all across this country, uh, and, and, and that I've been joined by my colleagues in Congress of good conscience to get this done, that we will win this fight. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're talking with Congressman Mondaire Jones, who represents New York's 17th District. So a lot of developments out of Washington, uh, the president's economic agenda, you know, has, you know, was in jeopardy or may be in jeopardy. He's been meeting with party leaders this week. But the lines that have been drawn aren't simply Republican versus Democrat. There's been even fractions or friction among uh, progressive and moderate Democrats. How do you envision this plays out? I so appreciate that question because it's just an opportunity to really frame this in a way that I think a lot of folks in the media uh, may not be catching on to. Uh, and that is, it's really a debate between moderates and progressives versus just a handful, just a small handful, representing about 4% of the caucus uh, over in the, in the Senate and in the House of conservative Democrats who have been trying to obstruct President Biden's broadly popular domestic agenda. You may recall that the Speaker of the House, the President of the United States, and the Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, over in the Senate announced an agreement months ago that we would pass both the reconciliation bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. In other words, the Build Back Better Act, which contains the vast majority of the president's economic agenda, and the much smaller bipartisan infrastructure bill at the same time, or do reconciliation first, uh, in fact. And, and then, unfortunately, a few weeks later, about 10 conservative Democrats in the House of Representatives said, nope, we want to impose an arbitrary deadline of, of September 27th for passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, and progressives standing up on behalf of the president of the United States insisted upon going back to that original agreement. And that is what we have done. And we have in the process gotten Manchin and Cinema to tell us what they can and cannot live with in terms of their top lines, you know, what, what number it would be acceptable to them. You know, all of it is paid for, all $3.5 trillion of the president's proposal is paid for. So don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, but but I'm excited. I think we'll, we'll I think we'll pass both bills. I'm more optimistic than ever before. And we are talking about expanding Medicare to include dental, vision and hearing and lowering the cost of prescription drugs. We are talking about making child care high quality and affordable. We are talking about paid family leave. Do you know that the vast majority of the developed world has a paid family leave program? And we don't. Uh, and and of course, uh, we're talking about climate action investments in renewable energy infrastructure, uh, tax credits uh, in the area of, of the green economy and, and for families. Uh, so we are talking about creating million, as many as millions of green, good-paying jobs 
that and so much more is what's at stake. And, and we are having a robust negotiation about what the final size of the Build Back Better Act will be. And speaking of uh, green legislation, we were talking uh, just a short time ago with the head of the uh, the MTA, Jenna Lieber, and we were talking about congestion pricing, you know, certainly a measure that is very much geared towards uh, uh, being aware of climate change and uh, environmental impacts. Uh, you know, just wondering, um, you know, what do you think is going to be the impact on New York, on, on the MTA, on all of us here, you know, try to keep it local, uh, if there is a scale back of infrastructure spending at the federal level, how is that going to trickle down to us as New Yorkers? You know, these, we're talking about national programs here. And I'm in a district up in Westchester and Rockland counties where the average cost of child care, which is infrastructure, if anyone had any doubt before the pandemic, it is infrastructure. When someone cannot afford child care, they cannot enter the workforce. And we are talking about something that particularly adversely impacts women and especially women of color. So we're going to build back better. We got to take women along with us and we got to take communities of color along with us. So specific to New York, if we are contemplating a a building back better, a return to normalcy, so to speak, in fact, even better than normal, that's the, that's the better part of it. uh, Then we've got to make sure that we have a New York where everyone and I mean everyone can afford childcare. I had to go to work with my grandmother sometimes when daycare was too expensive when I was growing up. No child should ever have to go through that experience. Um, and thankfully my mom had my grandmother to help her raise me, but a lot of people don't have that. Uh, you know, when I think about uh, Medicare uh, and, and it, what happens if we don't make uh, dental vision and hearing affordable, if we don't expand Medicare to include those things, if we don't lower the cost of prescription drugs, then many seniors in New York State will continue to have the experience of my grandmother who had to work well past the age of retirement just to pay for the high cost of prescription drugs and medical procedures that are not fully covered by Medicare as we currently know it. This, and of course the physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, and highways, uh, which are contained in that, um, a lot of it anyway, in that bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, are, are urgently necessary in New York State. And it's why we got to pass both of the infrastructure bills. And Congressman, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I really did want to get your reaction to the the federal judge's decision to grant the Justice Department's request to put on hold enforcement of the new law in Texas prohibiting most abortions in the state. But also, what you envision, do you envision that this is going to head to our Supreme Court? Because there is going to be a Supreme Court case that could potentially affect Roe versus Wade. So um, it's really a two-part question. Your reaction to the judge's decision and what you see, you know, the uh, the Supreme Court doing over this next session. Well, you know, Jeff, uh, last month, approximately last month, uh, the Supreme Court quietly overturned Roe v. Wade when it, in what's called a shadow docket, an unsigned opinion, allowed Texas's draconian abortion law to remain in effect. Uh, And since that time, the Supreme Court has granted review of a case in which it could explicitly overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, So that is what is at stake. Uh, I was pleased with the judge's decision, um, you know, uh, put, uh, striking down the law, but then it's going to be appealed, as we know, to the Fifth Circuit. 
the fifth, what's called the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which previously issued a ruling that was that allowed uh, the Texas abortion law to remain in effect. So I am not optimistic that short of reforming the Supreme Court of the United States through adding seats to the court, which is what my bill with Jerry Nadler, a great New Yorker, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, um, and Hank Johnson, the chair of the subcommittee on the courts, would do. It would add four seats to the Supreme Court of the United States. It would transform this hyper-partisan, right-wing, 6-3 supermajority on the court that is hostile to fundamental rights into, yet again, a majority uh, on, on a 13-person court that would protect fundamental rights as Roe v. Wade historically has done and as the voting rights did before this 6-3 majority you know, dismantled. The Roberts Court dismantled the Voting Rights Act over the past decade. And for for people who are following this idea or maybe not following the idea of the expansion of the court, you know, just looking ahead, I just wanted to ask you real quick as we run out of time here, uh, you know, some people might look at this and say, even though uh, Supreme Court appointments are appointments are for a lifetime going forward into the future, what is to stop this from becoming a slippery slope that whenever uh, people don't like uh, the composition of the court or things are not going their way, they want to change the way the, the system works you know what what do you say to people who sort of make the argument that uh, this is the way the founders set it up or this is the way it's been set up for a long time in the united states we should keep uh we should keep with our tradition it is it is uh, for people who are skeptical of court expansion the most common concern that is raised Uh, and one of the first things i explain is that the size of the court has changed seven times before in our nation's history Uh, and in fact, the size of the court was already changed. You could say it was packed when Mitch McConnell, who at the time was majority leader of the Senate, left a vacancy open for 14 months following the death of Antonin Scalia. So he changed the size of the court in that moment for over a year and then ran through uh, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett at the time that an election was underway. We all remember that because it was approximately one year ago nearly to the day. Uh, and so the, the so Republicans have been doing this, uh, even in recent history. And what we are looking to do, uh, because this is going to require an exception to the filibuster or abolition of the filibuster, is along with passing this, also pass voting rights legislation. And when we allow people to vote in this country who are eligible to vote, when we stop the disenfranchisement from happening, through automatic voter registration and same-day registration, through an end to partisan gerrymandering, which has been allowing QAnon conspiracy theorists to coast to victory in general elections, despite being unrepresentative of you know the median American voter, uh, then Republicans will stop winning national elections <laughs> because the only way they can win national elections is through disenfranchisement. And there won't be an opportunity for Mitch McConnell to expand the court yet again. Always wish we had more time to continue these conversations because they are important. But uh, Congressman Mondaire Jones, where can people find out more about you and your work? They can go to jones.house.gov. They can follow me on Twitter at Mondaire Jones. Uh, They can follow me on Instagram at Mondaire Jones. Um, And, of course, they can can tune into uh, TV. Congressman Mondaire Jones, thank you so much for joining us here on WBAI's Driving Forces. Glad to welcome you to the program. Thanks so much for having me.
So we're going to get to our final guest in just a few minutes, but we did want to take just 60 seconds or so, maybe a little longer because I can be long-winded, to just remind you about the importance of WBAI. We know we do this every week, but it's because it's important. We don't rely on funding from big corporate America. We don't rely on Google or Amex or Facebook or Apple. We rely on you. Our listeners, we appreciate you tuning in today and for making WBAI a part of your day. Right, Celeste? Absolutely. And, you know, really great to have conversations with, uh, you know, the people that we are able to bring to you as guests on this program, people who are making decisions, uh, representing us. I mean, just look at today. We had the head of the MTA. How many people's lives are affected in some way by what's going on at the MTA? Uh, a member of Congress, how deeply is our daily life and, and our livelihood affected by what goes on at the Capitol? These are the kinds of conversations that we love to bring to you every week, every day here on WBAI, but we can only do that with your help. So please take a moment today. Please do this. Go to WBAI.org and give as generously as you can. Just click ways to donate. It is very easy. It only takes a moment. You can make a one-time donation or you can uh, help us out even more and become a BAI buddy and set up a recurring donation. Help keep free speech radio alive here in New York. That's WBAI.org. And you could always donate in the name of your favorite show, whether it's Morning Ursae, uh, Latin Roots from the Soundboard, hosted by our very own exceptional Reggie Johnson, you know, or in one of the shows on our Drive Time News Block, but also our morning news show, including What's Going On, which is on every morning at 7 a.m. and has a rotating set of fabulous hosts like Frenchie Davis, Rebecca Miles, Felipe Luciano, Joanna Fernandez, and our final guest today, Bob Henley. We thought we'd bring him on to talk about his vision for the show, but first I'm going to tell you a little about Bob, and Celeste and I have known him for years. He's an award-winning print and broadcast investigative journalist. He's reported on a broad spectrum of major policy, questions ranging from homeland security to the economy, environmental contamination, corruption. He was born in Patterson, New Jersey, he was an on-air senior reporter for WNYC, New York Public Radio, for more than a dozen years. And before that, he was national affairs correspondent for Pacifica Network News and continues as an on-air investigative reporter with WBGO Newark Public Radio. And his current investigative work focusing on New York civil service is published in The Chief Leader, including I called up one of his stories during the show. It, was, it felt like it was like 10 minutes ago. He's working even as he speaks with us. So, Bob Henley, welcome to, well, your station, WBAI. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan. Of, I try never to uh, uh, miss uh, an installment. And you guys do bring national figures and never lose the local context. So I'm, we're much in your debt. Thanks, and it is it is so wonderful to catch up with you. But for our listeners who might be listening in the afternoon but have not turned on in the morning, tell us a little about what you've been up to. Sure. So um, Linda Perry um, had this idea of uh, creating this, I guess, somewhat uh, free form uh, with all a little bit of structure because radio, of course, you does require paying attention to the clock, as you guys know. If you don't master the clock, it masters you. And so, as you so rightly laid out, each uh, 7 to 8 a.m., five days a week, we have this uh, What's Going On, 
is the is the name of the show, and it takes on the the agenda and portfolio of the individuals who happen to be hosting. Mine is Monday, which is a privilege and honor. I it's your back to work, back to school Monday briefing, and its focus is labor. Uh, it's leading, and of course, to Democracy Now, the fabulous program that got its start in uh, at BAI, and now, of course, is an international institution. So, Bob, great to have you here on the show. Totally appreciate it. I feel like I didn't speak to you that long ago, but it is always great to hear your voice. Um, and I wanted to, I think I met you when you were at NYC. I'm sure of that. But, you know, let's let's talk about your work at the chief, you know, and especially got to ask since, uh, you know, you talk about labor, you talk about unions and so on. What do you make of this thing with the SBA? What do you make of this thing with uh, Ed Mullins? What's going on there? Well, I think that. Uh... This is something those of us who follow it for a long time know that as transformative and as essential as the labor movement has been and remains for Americans, um, uh, there has always been this temptation for corruption. We do not know yet the details of, of what's being alleged. Uh, and, of course, um, you know, even police officers and union officials uh, deserve due process. Um, I think that there is, um, we have had some high profile issues where, um, unions in the past, you know, people, particularly when you work, uh, or you represent people who are working all the time. I'm thinking of the corrections officers union. I'm thinking of, you know, all of these unions where members are working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, sometimes double and triple shifts. It's very easy for them to kind of lose track of what's happening with their union. We don't know yet the details of it, but um, what is clear is on the public record is that uh, uh, President Mullins really used his platform to advance a certain political agenda, um, which has been hostile and provocative, and some people believe crossed the line. So I think we do have to sort out the political things that were happening and his abuse of, of social media from the criminal matter, which, of course, in this system has to wait for the facts to be put forward and for due process. And, of course, since we have you here on the program, definitely want to uh, give you a chance to tell us about uh, the book that you have out recently. That book is Stuck Nation. Can the United States change course on our history of choosing profits over people? You know, what led you to, to uh, make this the focus of your book? What And, and what did you uh, what are you trying to get across in, in your writing there? Well, it's really uh, an attempt to try to put together a labor history which looks at um, really it covers everything from the doctrine of Christian discovery, the, the racist notion that um, uh, white um, discoverers uh, uh, empowered by the Catholic Church could come and pretty much own whatever people they saw when they were, quote unquote, discovering the new world through slavery and then takes it right up through how that same system of exploitation resulted in, in the death of the, the Triangle fire with immigrant women jumping to their death. It carries it forward right to what happened with 9-11 in the World Trade Center, where the EPA said the air was safe to breathe, and tens of thousands of first responders and people in lower Manhattan went about their business, uh, even as the government lied about the conditions of the air so that they could keep Wall Street open, right up through how disposable essential workers have been through COVID. There's a common thread there which is the ability of late-stage capitalism to objectify and disappear people and human truths that are inconvenient. 
And that's what Stuck Nation lays out, and it's published by Democracy at Work, which, of course, uh, that is that nonprofit's no stranger because, of course, Professor Rick Wolf was also on it on this air is the is the primary driver behind democracy at work. So that's its story and it's available. Uh, of course Stuck Nation is my Twitter handle and that's the handle I picked up at WNYC after noticing just how stuck the United States has been over the entire arc of my thirty years in journalism. So Bob, I love asking authors this question. I never know what the answer is going to be, but I'm really curious, as you were working on the book, what was the biggest surprise? What was something that kind of shocked you or stunned you that you had never realized before? Uh, I guess the thing is the continuity of this, of racism, and then the way that that is the through line of, of the American narrative. And in doing that research, I, I found things about my state, New Jersey, that I didn't know about. The fact that New Jersey itself waited until after Lincoln was assassinated and cessation of hostilities in the Civil War to uh, ratify the 13th Amendment, uh, that that New Jersey was very reluctant to give up slavery, that um, even to this day, we see echoes of uh, racism and slavery in our current labor law. I mean, the fact that during the New Deal, as much as FDR did to uplift working people, that as part of a deal to get the Fair Wage Act through and worker protections, he had to make a concession, and this sounds familiar to our mansion moment, uh, to Southern Dixiecrats that he would exclude farm workers and domestic workers. And that lives on today where we have a, a separate universe when it comes to folks that coming into our homes to help the elderly. Um, even the, the uh, minimum wage, the $2 sub-minimum wage, is a legacy of this betrayal of Americans of color, uh, people of color, even in the middle of the New Deal. So when you pull that line forward, you see why it's so essential for us to continue to re-examine history, because Jeff and Celeste, history is not dead. It requires our continuing study and reevaluation. You can read more about that and uh, Bob Henley's work and Stuck Nation. Can the United States change course on our history of choosing profits over people? And, of course, definitely check out Bob uh, 7 o'clock in the morning in our morning programming strip. Uh, really appreciate it, Bob. Always, again, really glad to hear your voice. Glad to hear that uh, you are doing this at BAI now and um, I'm kind of amazed, as usual, that you managed to juggle so many things at the same time. Well, we have to work on volume these days, and I'm at Stuck Nation, and thanks so much, guys, for taking the time. And boy, you're disciplined with the clock. Well done. <laughs> we try. We try. Bob Henley, thanks for being here with us on Driving Forces today. I have to say, he has a good voice for radio. He does. <laughs> he does. I always liked his delivery. He he really does, and you know, and I'm I'm just so glad he's he's part of the WBAI team. So uh, I know we've got to wrap up in just a few minutes. Celeste, what's coming up tonight? Uh, tonight, uh, we you mean for our lineup, or you mean like for our, me, our, like oh, sitting uh, on the sofa, <laughs> just eating some popcorn, watching my dog who's on crate rest, and I want to give a special programming shout out to my dog Pablo, who is a very good 
boy. But this evening, of course, we have the um, the WBAI evening news with Paul DiRienzo coming up. Then we have Justice Matters at 6.30, Sounds Like Work at 7, Education at the Crossroads at 8. And then we have a new program, which is uh, gaining some currency here, Backstage Stories at 9 p.m. And that reminds me, Jeff, what do we have coming up next week right here on Driving Forces? There was this really good piece in Gothamist that made me think, we need to let our listeners know about the ballot initiatives. We're focused on the general election, but there is a ballot initiatives. Uh, oh, by the way, Reggie just let me know. No, uh, no sounds like work this week. So sorry about that. My fault, oh, Celeste. Set, set me uh, up for a full but, there, Jeff. But, but there are five ballot proposals and we want you to know about it. So we're going to have a few guests. One is going to be Betsy Gopham, the former New York City public advocate and now head of the Citizens Union, and also Karen Blatt, co-executive director of the New York State Independent Redistricting Commission. And you have a big show yourself coming up on Sunday morning on CityWatch, right? I'm very excited about this one. I'm like, you know, just jumping out of my seat because you ever wonder as you're driving down the street how it got that name, who that person is? Maybe how the Bronx got its name or Brooklyn or any of our bridges. Well, basically, this show, City Watch, on Sunday, 10 in the morning, is going to be basically about discovering New York. And if you've wondered about things, hopefully we'll be able to provide you with the answers. So I have an author, Joshua Jelly Shapiro, author of Names of New York by Pantheon Books, who explains a lot of this, all that history, how we got names of so many things. Then Melinda Hunt, founder and president of the Heart Island Project, and then, finally, Justin Rivers, Chief Experience Officer at Untapped New York. He won't go through his entire list of 160 secrets of New York, but he's going to bring us some amazing things that you probably never had heard about, like the river running underneath a site in New York City, a hidden bowling alley, so much more, Celeste. That sounds awesome. I have to definitely tune in. And that is Sunday at 10 a.m., Jeff. Is that right? That was um, it. Okay, perfect. So that about brings us to a close here on today's edition of Driving Forces. We upload every edition of this program to SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, so you can subscribe to Driving Forces on WBAI. Never miss a show. And check us out also on Twitter and Facebook. Until next time, wishing you a great weekend and encourage you to stay tuned to WBAI. See you on the radio.